Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best lives. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. Today is uh, an exciting day, I I think. Um, We're going to learn about uh, living with dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, I was recently asked to sit on the county council and work on policy issues uh, for the association here locally in Utah. And I said yes, primarily because my mother has been living with dementia. And um, recently that was upgraded into a mild or moderate case of Alzheimer's disease. And um, I have some friends uh, that have lost their parents in the last couple of years, and we're going to be talking to them in future episodes. Uh, and um, I just thought that with the longest day of the year is June 20th, the summer solstice is coming up. And uh, the longest day is the Alzheimer's Association's uh, kind of awareness day. They do fundraising throughout the year, but this is their big kickoff and their big year event where they do a lot of fundraising. I signed up last night on the association for my online um, fundraiser, and I've set some goals to uh, hopefully be able to achieve in helping to fight this disease and end, all, <coughs> end Alzheimer's. Um, so... Today, I have a special guest, and we're going to learn a lot about this disease and and the impact on families and caregivers. Her name is Raven, and she also works for the association here in Utah locally, and uh, she's the program director. So welcome, Raven, to our show. Thanks so much, Michelle and Jenny. I'm really happy to be here with you um, and get to uh, add to your spreading of awareness of the burden of this disease, both on those who get the diagnosis and on the ones who are caring for them. Yeah. I've learned so much just actually just in our our morning conversation, I learned so much more um, before we got on this podcast from you today. And I, I can't wait to share that information with people that might be going through this. It's there is just so much that is going on when somebody gets that diagnosis and then the fallout to the family on, you, you know, where's the line of autonomy for the person that received the diagnosis? And, and it, you know, they slowly inevitably lose that autonomy. And that's the real struggle with this illness, right? Yeah, uh, I would say... Also, too, not everyone gets their diagnosis, and so there's a lot of people already going through those stages, and they haven't even been diagnosed, and a lot of people I talk to, they're they're not even there yet. They're just, they know their loved one has some type of dementia. They're pretty sure, but how, what do we do? How do I handle all this? Where do I go um, to get a diagnosis? And And it's even just hard to get the person to go get the diagnosis because they're very often resistant to talking to someone and acknowledging um, that there is, that they have a problem. Um, And so there's so many different, it's so complex and so many different um, situations 
Um, I didn't even think about that, but just you bringing it up reminds me of, you know, um, my sister and my dad were telling my brother and I that my mom was having issues and we just were in total denial. We just refused it completely. Mm -hmm. And my mom's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And, and we just, my brother and I were completely on her side (laughs) and turns out she did. Um, she, she was diagnosed at that point with, um, an, a dementia. I don't know exactly what the the original uh, diagnosis was, but it was some form of dementia. And now that's mm-hmm. been upstaged. Does that happen commonly? Do you like sometimes have like dementias, like maybe a lower or less complicated form of this disease or how, how, what is this? Tell, tell me about that. Well, I, I would say I'm not really an expert on that because that's definitely more on the clinical side and I'm more about caregiver support, Okay, but um, uh, if you, if you were to talk to those who give the diagnoses, um, you know, who are giving those diagnoses, there's, there's people who are experts like uh, geriatric psychologists that we have here in the state of Utah, for instance, at the University of Utah. Um, they, I know they have specialists like that. But often, who are people mostly going to probably access that might just be their primary care physician, who maybe isn't an expert on the different types of dementia. And so I don't know what that process is, is like, um, on the front lines for those who are just accessing, you know, that comp, that first conversation. And, um, but they, I do know that the most accurate way to get a diagnosis is through a PET scan. And those are not very available to people because they're very expensive and often insurance won't cover um, getting that scan. And so you're relying on less accurate testing to try to figure out what the diagnosis actually is. Wow. I, I wasn't aware of that. I'm going to have to go and talk to my family and see how, how this all ended up getting diagnosed in the first place. Um, well, tell us some of the statistics about this disease and what it means for those of us living here. We're in Utah, so and you're, you primarily have that information, right? Yeah. So we, um, the Alzheimer's Association every year comes out with our facts and figures report, and it has a ton of data about um, the disease and, uh, and related information like the burden on caregivers. And um, I've been very struck myself with how significant and prevalent this is. Uh, I didn't know myself before I started working with the association that uh, Alzheimer's is the leading, the fourth leading cause of death in our state. And that's even higher than the nation, the national, which is um, a little bit lower. So that's still high for the entire country, but Utah is actually even higher. That's really interesting to me. I, I didn't realize that either. Well, yeah. And then you think about, um, how, how low the awareness is then if nobody knows that it's the fourth leading cause of death, then what are we, what's happening in our state to actually do something about it versus things that people are more aware of, like, you know, we're, 
we're much more aware of, of other illnesses, I think, um, such as cancer um, and heart disease. And we're a lot more focused on those are, you know, very valid things to be concerned about. Um, but what we want people to understand is that this is just as valid and it's such a long-term um, span of what you can, I guess, just the illness itself and, and even like thinking about prevention, um, all of that starts way earlier than you would think. It's not, it's not an illness that you only need to be concerned about in the later stages of life. Right. And in fact, isn't there some things that we can do early on to, to possibly, if not help prevent it, at least help our brains be healthier? Yeah. And there's a study right now um, called the U.S. Pointer Study, and they're actually looking at, um, you know, evidence-based information and in research on what are the lifestyle factors that are modifiable that could potentially reduce the risk um, of Alzheimer's. And there are other things as well, like, you know, the disease itself is, is related to the presence of these plaques in the brain and tangles, called plaques and tangles. Um, but definitely we should be thinking about our brain health far before we need to think about when this might on it for us, which um, you know, might, we might normally think of that in our 60s or higher, but for those of us, you know, in our 40s, even younger, we need to be thinking about brain health. And um, we have a we have a list of you know 10 ways to love your brain, and they're for anybody. Um, and some it. of and I've heard some recent research as well on on some of these more in depth. I mean, these aren't just these aren't just a list of things that we thought, oh, well, what helps your brain? I mean, this is backed by research. Um, and the one that I heard about this week, a little bit more in depth was about sleep and how, um, you know, they're looking more closely at the importance of getting at least eight hours a night of sleep on the brain and how that, if you don't, if you get, I think it's less than six, especially that's, um, putting us at higher risk for those plaques and tangles to develop, which is what the scientific, you know, um, or the, I guess like what the health situation is in your brain that, what does that mean when you say Alzheimer's and dementia, you know, it right. means that you have these things in your brain. And so, um, there's a lot of things sleeping, uh, getting, you know, a good amount of sleep every night, um, exercising, um, our social health and having connections in our, you know, having good social life, which I think maybe some of us are all struggling a little bit more right now uh, after yeah, the COVID. pandemic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So they talk a lot about, uh, I think probably the one that people think the most is challenging your mind, right? You think, well, I need to uh, read and do puzzles, uh, but that's just one of, of a list of things that we needed to do. And one that I really think is interesting is, um, as well is, is the way that we eat. And so they have two, um, not, I mean, like we call them diets, but it's not diet in the way that we think, like we're trying to lose weight. It's just a way of eating. 
and that's the Mediterranean diet um, and the mind diet. Okay. Since you brought up the 10 ways to love your brain, um, where can we find that list? We have this list as well as a lot of so many other resources just on our website. And I would send um, any, if if your listeners are out of state, um, anyone can go to alz.org and you'll be able to find the resources and you can find the ones specific to your area. And in Utah, just go to alz.org forward slash Utah. Yeah. And I have that list in front of me about the 10 ways to love your brain. I, um, we could go into them in depth, but I'm just going to read them really quick. It's butt out, follow your heart, heads up, feel upright, catch some Z's, take care of your mental health, buddy up, stump yourself, break a sweat and hit the books. So um, all great ways to challenge our mind and our bodies, um, things that we should be really doing anyway. So um, thanks for sharing that. Let's talk about um, some of the the broader scope of this. We, we've covered like, you know, it's the fourth highest uh, leading cause of death in Utah. Um, it's what is it in the nation? It's I think you've got it down here as sixth leading. So it's high up there. It's it's uh, probably going to move up, I imagine, as the baby boomer g- generation starts to to age as well. Is that part of what's going on? Definitely that's going to play a role when you think about where we're already at in numbers. Um, 33,000 people in the state of Utah are living with Alzheimer's right now. Um, We have projections just in the next few years that that's going to go up, um, I think, more than 20%. And so part of that is the people that are entering this age group are going to be much higher than they have been ever. Um, and so, yes, the risk is higher as you age and we're going to have more people in that age group in the country, um, in the coming, you know, years. And so the burden already is very high, but it's only going to increase. Right. We need to take a break. When we come back, um, I want to talk more about the impacts to families. What is it like on the caregiver? How do we develop steps of resiliency um, when we're dealing with such a long-term illness and such a, uh, it's an insidious disease because it robs us of our person before, long before our person actually goes. And so we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. And we're back with Raven. Jenny, you have said, you've mentioned in the break that you had a question. I would love to hear it. Yeah, I've got a question. So Raven, obviously you do this for a living. You're working with, with the caregiver, the support, the statistic, the studies. Michelle, your mother is, is facing this disease. So you're both more familiar with this than I am. Um, I had a grandfather who suffered from dementia in his last years, but that's already been several years ago when I was quite young and not uh, very closely involved. So I love what Michelle said. Tell us what the the toll and the effects are on the caregiver and how that person or those people can find that resilience. But Raven, can you tell us, and maybe Michelle, you chime in as well, for listeners who might be vaguely familiar, we all we all know what Alzheimer's 
is, we've, you know, it, it's kind of this vague concept in our minds, but can you tell us maybe what might we look for symptomatically? You said a lot of people maybe don't have that official diagnosis or that PET scan. What what symptoms might I see in my loved one? Uh, what what does it look like? Not necessarily the clinical term of what's happening inside my brain, but day-to-day Someone who's suffering from Alzheimer's, what can I as a caregiver or a family member expect to see or or watch out for? Can you maybe give us that little one-on-one a little bit? You bet. Uh, We love the number 10 in the Alzheimer's Association. So we have another list of 10. um, And that one is called Know the 10 Signs. And we actually have one of our educational programs that's on this. And this is open to the public. So anyone can attend this session and learn a little bit more in depth. Uh, But some of the things on that list um, are really important because it clarifies, because, you know, we all wonder like, Oh, I can't remember, you know, things like I walk into a room and I forget why there that's not a sign of Alzheimer's. That's something that we all go through, but it's, um, it's really distinct memory loss that disrupts life. Um, like you drove to the grocery store that you've been going to for decades, decades, and you suddenly can't remember how to get home. And so one of the ones is just being, you know, more distinct about the, the memory loss types. Um, it's, it's very disruptive to your daily life. Um, another thing I would mention is the confusion. Um, so, confused about what time of day it is or really disoriented feeling in a familiar place like even in your own home you feel confused and so um, looking for things like that also uh, difficulty completing familiar tasks and so if you think about it's something maybe that this person has been doing their whole life uh, you know maybe a recipe they've always made. My grandparents, you know, my grandpa always baked pies. My grandma always, um, you know, made uh, banana pudding. And what if one day they couldn't remember that recipe that they had memorized? It was something that they, that was really locked in their mind and suddenly they don't know how to do it. Or even simple things like, how do I run the vacuum? What is vacuuming? What do you mean by that? Um, so it is pretty distinct if you, if you really think about it, um, because of the different ways that Alzheimer's and dementia affect the brain though, it can manifest in different ways. Um, so not just with memory or confusion, but also other types of things like the, the judgment that they're demonstrating. Do they demonstrate like a decrease in their judgment? It seems like they're making poor judgment. Uh, maybe they're more susceptible to scams or product claims that might be false. Um, other things, another one that I think is really important is changes in mood and personality. Uh, because of what Alzheimer's does to the brain, the person actually forgets who they are mm-hmm. and their personality might change. And that, in, in, you know, that itself might affect the mood that you see them in. And so if they don't seem like themselves. Um, But there are 10 signs and uh, I'll just hit on the ones I didn't say. Other ones include challenges in planning or solving problems, trouble understanding visual images and spatial relationships, 
new, new problems with words and speaking or writing, uh, misplacing things and losing the ability to retrace your steps, um, withdrawal, social withdrawal from work or other social activities are also on the list. You know, it's fascinating, and I'm sure you can relate, Jenny. <laughs> widowhood. <laughs> yeah, widowhood. New problems with words well, just and speaking. heavy grief. Yeah. yeah. Problems speaking and writing. I mean, you, you've you done a beautiful job. You've spoke for Brent um, on his behalf multiple times, and you were amazing. But I noticed that right after I lost John, like even holding a conversation, sometimes the b- most basic words were just such a challenge. Yeah, And so I know that, you know, heavy grief can bring in a lot of these signs, but if they don't recover, if you, if you don't get better, then they're well, probably something else. That's what I can't, you know, I'm trying to place myself into this position as you talk about the different challenges and trials we all go through. But Michelle, you really hit on it to, to have someone suffer Alzheimer's is to lose them before you lost them. Yeah. You know, we've, we, you, you bury someone and that comes with its own grief, but to have them still living and yet maybe not themselves or the, the frustration, like you said, in, in widowhood or grief, there's times when I remember thinking, I don't remember how to make dinner. I don't remember how to plan that I need to, to feed my kids those daily tasks. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that going with me the rest of my life, the rest of my years and, and not being able to kind of shake it off or, or hope I can snap out of this. Raven, I had another question that I hope isn't um, inappropriate or, or, or a given. Maybe I'm just missing it. When we say that Alzheimer's is the fourth leading cause of death here in the state of Utah, how is a death caused by Alzheimer's? Again, I, I apologize if I'm sounding completely ignorant. Like I know that heart failure mm-hmm. causes death because the heart stops beating, mm-hmm. or a car accident causes death because the body is experiences a trauma it can't survive or might lead to death or something. Is there a way that a death is caused by Alzheimer's? Does the brain just shut down to the point that it cannot function the body? Yes, and I'm glad you asked because I think you're definitely not alone in your curiosity. And um, most of us didn't understand this. You know, my grandmother died of Alzheimer's uh, it, when I when I was in my 20s, and I, I had no idea so many of the intricacies of the disease. It does actually shut down the brain. Um, and ultimately, because the brain is what controls the function of our organs, uh, the last stages of Alzheimer's causes the organs themselves to stop functioning. Oh and so goodness. the progression of the disease typically happens over several years. But at the end, um, what is usually happening is uh, it actually is in the brain, but it's how the brain is controlling the other parts of the body. And so I think there's probably a stigma out there that, well, that's just dying of old age. It's, it's really not. It's a medical, a medically observable death caused by the disease. Wow. I appreciate you sharing that because I'll admit I was not aware of that. I I think a lot of the things you described about the memory or the confusion or the personality changes kind of fit my stereotype of what maybe Hollywood has taught me Alzheimer's is. But to think of how, of course, that makes sense. If the brain is losing its function, that might start as a cognitive thing. That might start as a personality thing. But it is the brain that runs the entire body. And I hadn't 
really connected those two thoughts that Alzheimer's will shut down your body by slowly shutting down your brain. I mean, that is just, I, I appreciate you putting it into those words and I hope I'm not the only one that, that, you know, got some clarity out of that. I imagine I'm not. No, I, I'm sure that you're not. In fact, um, it, it's a, it's a crazy disease. And going back to that whole, like we lose them. It, it's kind of like, uh, I recently went out and visited my parents and, you know, my dad had a moment with me and, um, you know, I can relate because he's losing my mom in pieces. And I can kind of understand that because I lost John over time from cancer. But his cancer was also robbed him of other functions and, and ability to be intimate and those things. And so we lost pieces of our relationship in incremental pieces. And... um and so in that way, I can relate to what my dad's going through. The hard thing is, is that, um, and, and, you know, some people do it with cancer. I mean, I, I, I knew a family that um, she had cancer for 15 years. But I I think the hard thing with this is that the the term of this disease, is it, it does, it's not necessarily the same for everyone, but it's a long, drawn-out process. It's, it's a very slow process process typically is that correct raven yes it's it's a lot longer than of an experience than a lot of caregivers go through with other um, types of caregiving so uh, the average length of the disease as it progresses is about eight years and um, so when you think of care, the burden on the caregiver, you have someone who's losing, like you explained, slowly losing their loved one over time and increasing in the caregiving support that is needed. And it's about five years longer than other types of caregiving. Yeah, that creates a lot of issues. Like I was the caregiver to my husband for 22 months. And a, a lot of that time, he was still able to go to work. I, I had to do other things for him, like manage his medications, his appointment, um, giving him his IV fluids, those kind of things. Um, but to to have to do this for five, six, seven, eight years, I mean, that's a long time for a person to be in the situation where they're caring for somebody who has so many needs, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And they did a study that showed, you know, the different types of care um, that they have to give assistance with when you're, when you're caring for someone with dementia and it's just higher, you know, and, and incontinence and emotional and mental health problems and behavioral issues are just way more prevalent, um, as well as just the, you know, helping with living activities, but these very stressful types of things are much higher, um, when dealing with Alzheimer's and dementia. I think the challenging thing too, being around some people with, with having had this and, and watching my mom is there's moments of clarity. And so then you think that you're with your person and then all of a sudden they're talking about something or they're repeating something or and it becomes challenging to you mentally because you're like we just had that conversation like why are we doing this again you know 
And it's not like you want to be irritated, but you kind of can't help it on some level. And and it sure. it gets wearing, you know, and as the disease progresses, sometimes they'll get stuck in a loop. So they'll go over the same thing over and over and over again. And that is just so mentally challenging for the person who's not dealing with it on a couple levels. One, because they're seeing it happen to the person that they love and they can't fix it. And, and that creates all kinds of its own emotion. But it's also challenging because it, it can be annoying for somebody who's not in that loop with them, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just definitely it's just a challenging yeah. it's on multiple levels, it's really a challenging um experience to go through. It really is. I was I was in a meeting recently with a lot of the other people in this network in Utah that tried to provide support to this issue. And there was a caregiver that spoke up and shared her story. And, you know, she, she spoke to that. She said, I'm not happy. I'm miserable. You know, that I, she's like, don't paint a picture of that. You know, this is going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. When you get access to the supports. Yes, we have a lot of support for people caregiving, um, those who are living with dementia, but like you said, it's, it's definitely very challenging. And I think when you think about what kind of situations people are in when they're caring for someone with dementia, often it's just them and the, the person that they're caring for alone, a lot of the time. And, um, those are very, uh, frustrating situations when you have, you know, repeat, repeating those, um, conversations over and over of trying to decide like, well, what do I say? Um, I'm not even sure what to say when they say that. And then having someone say that over and over, it reminds me of um, almost in a way of dealing with toddlers. Like we all go through that with raising kids and they, they just push those buttons over and over and over. And we all know, you know, what that's like, but think of dealing with that with an adult um, and someone maybe who's even your partner. And who was someone you relied on, I right. believe, prior to this. And they're no longer that support for you. And you're you're just beyond exhaustion and you're isolated. Um and I think the isolation not knowing for the caregiver. Yeah, yeah, I think the isolation for the caregiver is like beyond. Um my parents don't live in in a they live kind of in a rural community and um you know, I, I live 12 hours away from them. I'm, I'm not in a position where I can just hop over there. And it kills me um, to watch my dad and realize that he's there. And I was going to say stuck with her. But I don't mean it in, in like he loves my mom and he wants to be there with her. But it's also just so exhausting. It's just so mentally taxing. I, when my dad got COVID, I, um, I stayed a week and that was just a real eye opener. I had actually been in quite a, a bit of denial that my mom actually had this and that it wasn't an actual real problem. And that was the moment that I realized, uh, this is a problem. <laughs> 
And it, it's well, hard. You're definitely not alone. I mean, everything you're describing, my heart goes out to you and, and everyone um, that's dealing with this, but it's, it's so common, like denials, the number, <laughs> the first sign of caregiver stress. I think that's the, the first, first thing I in. think that's where our brains always go. Any kind of tragedy, yeah. hardship, weight, we go to denial. <laughs> I, I think it's our human coping mechanism, maybe just kind right. of that innate ability to say, no, this can't be happening. Hey, Raven, let's take one more quick break and then we want to come back. Let's talk about caring for the caregiver, whether you are the caregiver or you are a loved one who is the caregiver. How do we help the caregiver who obviously can only give what they can give to the person needing that care. We'll be right back. All right, Raven, can you tell us what this caregiving looks like when you're helping someone who has uh, Alzheimer's or dementia and what to watch out for in yourself if you are the caregiver or maybe if if there are those of us who know someone who's a caregiver, caregiver, what can we watch for to help the caregiver not completely be worn to the ground as they're trying to assist their loved one? Absolutely. And this is what I'm most passionate about with what we do at the Alzheimer's Association is try to connect people with the supports because they need a lot of support and there are many different types of support um, available. So the problem is most people don't access them. And so a lot of people are just dealing with this in a very isolated way. Um, Let's talk about the signs. to to look for in yourself or others that are caregivers. So I mentioned denial. um, And I think that is really common just, and what does denial look like? Maybe they're not really responding to the needs of the situation and they don't want to talk about it uh, with other people. They're still kind of hiding a little bit or, um, you know, not really living fully in the situation where, they're like, okay, this is a problem. These are all problems. And here's what we need to do about it. Like you said, it's probably just really hard to face all of that. It's a big thing. Mm -hmm. Um, The next one I would mention is anger. Uh, We're probably familiar with that. And (laughs) again, with other, um, you know, with grief and other stages, uh, anger, I mean, I think probably goes along with that because you're probably, like you said, you're losing the person while they're still alive. And so you're going through some of the stages of grief, grieving for the relationship that you had with them, grieving for um, the loss of who they are. Right. And so going through anger is really common. Um, And like I said, because people don't feel like being super public with this often, they, they tend to withdraw socially. And so social withdrawal is another one. Are you, are you not talking as openly with your support system? Are you um, staying home more and not connecting with supports in the community or with your family and friends? I would look at that. Um, we have symptoms as well that show up physically and psychologically for the caregiver. Um, are, these symptoms are really high anxiety, depression, Um, exhaustion, and I would say probably both mental and physical exhaustion. Um, This can manifest as sleeplessness, um, just irritability, uh, even just trouble concentrating. Um, And it can be a lot of other health problems. If your health is getting worse, 
that's really common for caregivers. Right. Um, in fact, across the board. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that really stood out to me as I started studying this is that 36% of caregivers of dementia caregivers actually die themselves before the person that they're caring for. And that's because they're not, they're not taking, you know, care of their own personal health. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. That and also not beneficial for the person who's suffering with the disease, <laughs> because now that you know they've lost their their support system, that is crazy. Thirty six percent die before the actual person that they're caring for. That's yeah, a high and that one number. just gets me. That one gets me. You yeah. know, I, I, my dad was the primary caregiver for my grandma, and I. My mom was a primary caregiver for um, her mom. She didn't have Alzheimer's, but in the last stages of her life. And I just, I see both of them and I can see they, they seem older, you know, physically than they actually are. They're only still in their mid sixties. But you can tell the toll that it's taken on their health and um, in so many ways. And everyone's different because we all have Uh, you know, we're more predisposed to different types of illnesses already based on our lifestyle and our genetics. But then you add on these incredible stresses to that. And um, those chronic illnesses, they just shoot right up. Yeah. Most caregivers are dealing with a a chronic illness of some kind. Um, And just the stress, I mean, stress so causes so many things. Right, exactly. So how, how, how do we build that resiliency? How do we work to manage that stress if we are a caregiver? I love that question. And here's where there's so many possibilities and where we have so much room to grow um, as a society. And I hope that the people that are learning more about this get excited about this too. It's just, okay, well, not only do we want to take steps to live in a way that we're supporting our brains, but um, we can really do something about the burden of this um, in our, in our families, with ourselves, in our, in our state and country by increasing the support that we give to caregivers. And um, this is really, there's a lot of ways that you can do it. I mean, you talked about the longest day that you're um, participating in Mm -hmm. and and that's kind of a, a, a big awareness event to try to help people engage in really understanding, like, what is it like to deal with something 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that's super hard. And, um, and so with the longest day, I would just mention that, um, you can go to alz.org forward slash TLD and get involved with a longest day activity of some kind and increase awareness and, um, support and and just connect with your own loved ones and talking about this and I think that awareness is a really important factor in getting that support to people because there is so much stigma and like I said there's people that just aren't accessing the supports and then I'll also talk about supports that are available so at the Alzheimer's Association we do a lot of just referral and having that first conversation with someone about um, what's going on? What are you dealing with? And then what do you need? And the biggest way that we do that is through our helpline. 
And I would just give a plug for that. I think it's one of the most valuable resources um, anyone dealing with Alzheimer's or dementia can use, and that's nationally. And, and what that's the 800 are, number, the Alzheimer's Dementia 24-7 line? Is that what you're talking yeah. about? So it's the 1-800-272-3900? Yes. And yeah. if you call that number, you'll get online and they'll, you know, they'll ask you what's going on and then they'll connect you with the right person there. Um, which what I really love about it is they have these master's level clinicians um, that are experts in Alzheimer's and dementia, and they can walk you through the situation that you're in and make, and help you problem solve it. Um help you figure out what supports you need to connect with. And because it's not just the self-care, which I'm going to talk about that too, that the caregiver needs to do, but it's support for this huge burden that they're carrying. I mean, they, when you're caring for someone with Alzheimer's and dementia, you might have, they might walk away. They might disappear. What do I do when I've, you know, my loved one just disappears. I don't know what they're, where they're going. They're very, irritable and confrontational and how do I get them back in the car you know or what is going on is this Alzheimer's and dementia I'm noticing you know these symptoms and stuff um there's just so many things to troubleshoot and and this is a seven days a week 24 hours a day they can call and get support and so I would say number one is connecting with that yeah it sounds like uh, we really need a national uh public awareness effort on that because I mean, I've been dealing this for a while, and, and if it wasn't um, the opportunity to serve on the board, I wouldn't be learning about these resources. That You know, we need to, to have a better awareness campaign going out, out there to really promote this, because you're right, there's so many different levels of um, of challenges that get presented in dealing with this as a caregiver. It's so hard. It is yeah, so hard. It is and, so hard. And that's what we want people to know is you're not alone and you don't have to do this alone. And we will offer these other resources and connect people to them. So along the lines of that whole, you're not alone um, thing that people, we want people to know and experience and stop doing it by themselves is we have support groups. Um, and every Alzheimer's Association chapter will have these and everything we do is free. And so I feel like, and I've been through really, you know, traumatic experiences myself. And when I finally found, you know, the right, uh, the right type of medical care that would help me, or when I finally found my people that had been through when I had been through, those were the game changers. And those are the things that we can help with. And so um, it's very dementia and Alzheimer's specific, what types of community resources are available. And we, that's what everyone needs to know. Well, you need to know where can I get respite care? Where can I get someone to come give me a break so that I can take a breath? Um, and that's so huge. And that's something that is really lacking in, in, um, our country is there's not a lot of funding going towards supporting respite for caregivers. And, um, I know that you and I had talked about, you know, if people are interested in, in, in more advocacy side of this, that's one of the things that you can do is reach out to your local leaders and, um, 
just say, I, I think there needs to be more support for caregivers and, and how we're, um, you know, voting on bills and things. So there's a couple of things um, right now that you could reach out to your legislators about that could increase the support for caregivers on a more, a larger level, a larger scale. Yeah. So important. Um, yeah. And so number one, yeah, call the helpline. Number two, know what resources are available and, and do what you can to increase those resources in your community. Um, and then accessing, get help, find support, um, use the, use the support groups. We have support groups every week at different times, and it's a chance to talk with people who really get what you're going through. Um, and you may find that right connection, that that person that, you know, they've been in that situation. They can say, oh, yeah, I, I did that with my loved one, too. And here's here's what worked for us. Um, and it can just it's like you guys said, when you're caring for someone, your brain is so full. And you just need other people to help you think right. through those challenges yeah. and, and just stuff that's foreign to already. Well, and I love um, this, how it ties into resilience, you know, any, any type of trial or struggle or tragedy or trauma, like you said, I love how you said it. It's finding my people mm-hmm. when I either found the diagnosis or the professional help I needed, which is very essential. And then I found my people. And I think that's one thing that as a culture, we tend to struggle with saying the words, I need help or I can't do this. And we feel like those words are going to be kind of the dam that stops it. And now we're just stuck and we're at a loss when really those words open the gate to finding out that, you know what, you're not alone. You're not the only one that's a caregiver or a widow or a cancer patient or a victim of a hundred thousand other things Saying those words, I need help, getting that support group is exactly what you said, Raven. That's the game changer. The game changer of resilience is realizing your resilience doesn't have to just be yours. And maybe the most resilient thing you can do is let someone else lend you their resilience or be, I I joke, I've got a couple of friends, I call them my backbone. When I feel like I'm just a puddle and I can't take it anymore, I know I can call so-and-so friend And he's going to be my backbone and he's got me and he's going to remind me of what I'm capable of. He's going to let me kind of fall apart and pick me back up. And I think we all need those people in our lives, whether they're, uh, you know, a very close family relationship or like you said, these support groups that you might feel like you're with a group of strangers, but you have an instant connection because of the trial that you're both facing or that you're all facing. And how great is that to have our resilience be shared? How much stronger are we? I always think of the silly analogy of a piece of string or a little twig and how easy it is to bend and break if it's just the one. But when you have a handful of itty-bitty twigs, you really can't break them together. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's one of the things I'm hopeful people through these conversations we're having on this podcast and in today's kind of world that's changing so quickly, I hope we'll realize the strength of admitting when we're not strong. Yeah. And, and to be able to ask for that help when we need it and find our people. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's so, I mean, definitely, it is strong to ask for help. It is strong to find the tools that you need. I mean, I definitely feel that. And I've lived it. When you find tools, you're, you are, you're able to be more resilient because um, living in isolation and, and in darkness 
um, it's just too hard. Yeah. And, and you, resilience is reaching out and finding the light. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Resilience is reaching out and finding the light. The light is there. You might have to reach out and find it. And sometimes you're grappling and searching around like, where is the darn light? But it's there. And a doctor might have that light or a friend might have that light or a support group or a chat room online or a, a social media group or something. Reach out and find that light. Raven, I think that is so beautiful. Find the tools you need. Don't that. feel like you that have to tagline be... for our podcast. It's another t-shirt. Make <laughs> yes. another t-shirt. Well, you don't have to be everything and yeah. know everything and handle everything. You just have to know how to reach out and keep reaching. I love that. So Raven, what else is on that list? So uh, a lot of the same things that we would say with any type of, you know, our own well, taking care of our well-being, get moving, get some physical exercise, get outside, um, get your blood flowing and, and all of that. Use relaxation techniques. Um, any of us who are living in really stressful day-to-day situations, we need to take time to calm our nervous system. Um, deep breathing, using visualizations, um, anything that helps you relax and calm down the nervous system because you're in such a heightened state of stress all the time. Right. Um, finding time for yourself. What was that? (laughs) For me, it's uh, meditation, breath work, yoga, and Pilates. That's the only thing that keeps me going. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do. I love those too. And and they do. I mean, they, they are actually doing something within the body that calms us down and helps us to be able to move on to the next task Absolutely. in a more grounded way. Um, and finding time for yourself. I mean, this is probably the hardest one and that people aren't doing as caregivers. They are, it's a 24 hour hours a day, seven days a week, and they don't take time away from it because who's, whose needs are more demanding the person they're caring for. Right. Um, becoming educated as a caregiver. We have, we have a ton of resources on our website. Um, uh, we have free training and classes to help understand and deal with all these challenges of caregiving. And so reach out and get those resources, learn about these tools of how to deal with those various situations, take care of yourself. Uh, making legal and financial plans is really important as well. And just consult your, consult your doctor, uh, make sure that you're taking care of your health as well. If you have symptoms, like we said, a lot of people are dealing with chronic illnesses as caregivers, getting attention for, for those symptoms is really important. That is so awesome. I I really appreciate you sharing that list with us and they're great for any caregiver, anyone that you might not be dealing with dementia right. and Alzheimer's, but they're, they're great tips and advice for anyone who, who is um, a, a currently a caregiver. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this information with our podcast, our, our listeners. Um, we are going to be sharing the stories of two women who have lost their parents, one a mom and one, one a father. Um, to this disease and um, talk about them and and the struggles that they um, had to deal with. I, I'm so grateful that um, Dennis called me up and reached out to me and offered me the opportunity to serve on this board. It's given me a reason to face the reality of um, this disease 
and the fact that it is in my family and my mom is suffering with it and my my whole family is actually suffering with it it's not it's not just the person who who actually is diagnosed um everything that we've talked about today is on alz.org and that 24/7 helpline is listed at the very top right of the corner of the page it's 1-800-272 3900 um you can donate there they are um they accept donations all the time we'd love to end alzheimers and um that would be the most fantastic thing to have happen however uh you can also register for the longest day either by registering to do an event or attend an event or um, have your own fundraiser. I started my fundraiser, so I have a social media fundraiser that I'm doing. I'm going to run it through now till the end of, um, or to, to the longest day, the summer solstice. And um, I set a goal for $1,600. Um, we can do more than that if we want to, or uh uh, any support or help would be awesome. When you register for the longest day, you just hit that tab on there and you can either um, find resources or uh, check the, the if, if you do your own fundraiser. Uh, I just checked mine. I did this last night, so I don't know who donated to me already, but I've got $100 added to my donation. So who knows? Um, anyways, you can find resources there. You can also join uh, somebody else's uh, hashtag end ALZ, E-N-D-A-L-Z, end Alzheimer's, uh, which is the hashtag the longest day also um, on social media if you want to look for those. Anyway, you can either join a fundraiser or um, uh, start your own. Um, I'm... My name of my fundraiser is For the Love, hashtag end ALZ. And I'm doing it on behalf of my mother, Tanya. And any support or help from those who want to share and do that would be great. I was able to see on my page, my father just donated $100. Aww. Oh, I'm going to cry. Yeah. <laughs> well, Raven, thank you for joining us. And really, this is kind of starting a new. It's a new area of conversation. We've talked a lot about people who faced illness, a lot about people who faced burying a loved one or or some of those other tragedies and trials. And yet there are so many people who, as you said, Raven, are caregivers for one reason or another. And this particular disease can be especially taxing to those caregivers. And their resilience is going to be dependent on their ability to find the right people and the right tools to help them. So Thank you for joining us today. To our listeners, like Michelle said, stay tuned. The next couple of episodes will stay on this same topic. We'll hear a few people who have struggled with this and lost a family member and and hopefully help us learn how to take care of ourselves, take care of those who take care of others. And like Michelle said, join the battle to end this terrible disease. Uh, If you like what you've heard, please give us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you or someone you know has a real story about real life that you're willing to share, contact us on social media at Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient and on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, and we know that there's a lot we can learn from the experience you have faced in your life. <music>